This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. This is attorney Alan Pierce of the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts, where we concentrate in the representation of injured workers in workers' compensation and related cases. We've done many shows on workers' comp matters. One show we have not done is to explore uh, the role of other areas of, of the law and other programs when an injury occurs in the workplace. And to that end, I am delighted to introduce as a guest Melissa Fleischer. Melissa is an attorney. She earned her JD degree from the George Washington University Law School. And she, in addition to being uh, an attorney, she is an expert in human resources. She is an employment law attorney and HR advisor utilizing her 20 years of law practice experience specializing in employment discrimination litigation to form the HR Learning Center LLC, which is an HR consulting firm that specializes in providing workplace solutions to employers on a wide range of legal and human resource management issues. We're going to discuss today the various other employment laws that impact in either a small way, no way, or in a large way uh, with workers' compensation, including but not limited to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Family Medical Leave Act, the Americans with Disability Act, etc. So, Melissa, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you so much, Alan, and I'm very excited to be here to discuss these uh, employment-related issues with you vis-a-vis uh, -vis workers' comp and what employees need to know about their rights under all of these laws. All right. Let's start with maybe the chief question that, that uh, a lot of injured workers ask me, if not the first time we meet, very shortly thereafter. They have worked for an employer. They are out with an injury. They're being treated. They're unable to work. And the first question or a frequent question they ask me is, my employer can't terminate me while I'm, worker, I'm out on workers' comp, can they? And um, I very rarely, if ever, answer that with a yes or no. What would be my response to that question? Well, that's a great question, Alan. And the answer really depends on this sort of what we call Bermuda Triangle of three important laws. Obviously, you know best workers' comp law, but there are other laws that can impact when an employee is out on a medical leave, including the Family Medical Leave Act, as well as the ADA. So while workers' comp doesn't prohibit an employer from terminating the employee, of course, as you well know, there are the anti-retaliation provisions of the workers' comp laws in most states which would prohibit an employer if they were terminating the employee uh, in retaliation for them having filed a workers' comp claim, and sometimes that becomes a muddy issue. But the other laws that can, depending on eligibility, et cetera, 
uh, affect and protect an employee in those situations would include the FMLA if the work-related injury would constitute a serious health condition under the FMLA as well as uh, the ADA and ADA Amendments Act to the extent the work-related injury would constitute a uh, disability and that the employee would constitute a qualified individual with a disability under the uh, the meaning of the ADA and the laws. Well, I feel good that you couldn't answer that question with a yes or no either, because it's, it, it, you can't. Uh, first of all, I think we have to distinguish between at-will employees and non-at-will employees or, or employees that are under some type of contract of employment or a collective bargaining agreement. Let's kind of look at that kind of broad section of employees, and there is an essential difference, is there not? Oh, absolutely, and, you know, that's a great point to bring up, and that is that in every state in our country, other than Montana, don't ask me why, but they're the holdouts, there is, as you know, employment at will, and what that basically means is that an employer can uh, hire or fire an employee for any reason or no reason at all unless they do so for a quote-unquote unlawful reason. And what usually ends up constituting a, an unlawful reason would be if the termination was discriminatory or if there was an implied or expressed contract or if the termination was in violation of some sort of public policy, like because they filed a workers' comp claim. So usually employees are employees at will, but when you have a collective bargaining agreement, obviously that alters the status of uh, employees being employed at will because under, a collective, under most collective bargaining agreements, the employer is only allowed to terminate the employee if they can establish, quote-unquote, just cause for the termination. So, obviously, that's the first issue that you have to look at many times is, are you an employee at will, or are you covered and is your employer covered by the provisions of a collective bargaining agreement? And, you know, most, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be frank with you, most of my, my employees are employees at will. There are, aren't as many in the workforce today as there were 50 years ago that are part of uh, organized labor uh, or working under a collective bargaining agreement just by virtue of the nature of the changing of the workforce. So uh, employees at will, as you mentioned, they're like tenants at will in an apartment. They don't have a lease, and they can be evicted or, in effect, discharged uh, for any reason so long as the reason doesn't violate uh, existing federal or state discrimination laws or, or public policy. Uh, so let's let's talk about that a bit. You mentioned two federal statutes, uh, again, the, the initials are FMLA or Family Medical Leave Act or Americans with Disability Act, otherwise known as the ADA. What, let's, let's talk about the FMLA first. Uh, some of my injured workers come in and they have paperwork, FMLA application or the FMLA um, uh, paperwork. Other, other employees never see it. Some employees see it several weeks or months into an injury. What, in effect, does the FMLA provide in terms of job protection? Well, that's an excellent question, and the answer is the FMLA uh, provides the employee with the right to take 12 weeks of uh, job-protected leave in a 12-month period for um, certain specific reasons. Now, unlike 
many of the uh, other employment laws, including the ADA, one of the things that an employee would have to do in order to be eligible to take FMLA leave or in order for their work-related injury to um, entitle them to be protected by the FMLA is they have to, one, show that they are an eligible employee, which would require that they have worked for that employer, that they have 12 months of service working for that employer, that they have worked for the employer for 12, 50 hours in the preceding 12-month period, and they work at one of the employer's locations with 50 or more employees within a 75-mile radius. So whereas uh, laws like the ADA can apply even to people who are applicants and not yet employed by the employer, for the FMLA, you have to meet these eligibility requirements. And in addition, you can only take FMLA leave for certain specified reasons set forth under the law, usually if the employee has a serious health condition, if the uh, employee is taking leave to care for a uh, parent, spouse, or child with a serious health condition, uh, and other uh, service member leaves, etc. And in addition, you're not entitled, uh, although most employees may think they are, to an uh, unlimited amount of leave, but rather you only get 12 weeks of unpaid leave in a 12-month period. So if they've already exhausted uh, their uh, FMLA leave for a prior injury or prior serious health condition, then they may not have any FMLA leave left. But I'll tell you that the most interesting thing that your, uh, your clients and employees might not be aware of is that even if they don't request FMLA papers for a work-related injury, and even if the employer never gave them work-related uh, FMLA papers for a work-related injury, if they just by speaking with their manager or speaking with HR told them enough information so that the employer should know that they're going out for an FMLA qualifying reason, that leave that they take for the work-related injury could be protected by the FMLA, even though no one ever said the word <laughs> FMLA. And when, when would that leave begin and, and it would end 12 weeks later? So would it begin retroactively to the date that they went out, or could it begin weeks or months into their disability? So that's a great question. It would begin as soon as the employer found out or got the information, like the employee comes in and tells his manager, you know, or calls HR and says, you know, I was listing something, you know, yesterday at work and I injured myself and I um, uh, saw my doctor and my doctor put me out on uh, workers' comp. So as soon as the employer gets that information, now, in order, it, it will, and they go out on leave, courts have held that that will be job protected, assuming they are an eligible employee and they haven't already exhausted their 12 weeks of leave. But in order to, uh, what HR likes to do is they like to count that leave towards the employee's 12-week entitlement. In order to do that, HR sort of has a difficult burden. They have to provide the employee with a designation letter, an actual letter telling the employee this leave is going to count towards your 12-week entitlement. And in fact, it is not the employee's choice whether or not the employer can do that. 
if the employer finds out that the leave is FMLA qualifying, and many employees don't even get this, it is the employer's right to designate that leave as FMLA qualifying. So it will be protected, but also it will count towards their 12-week entitlement. So let's say you have an employee who injures her, her arm at work, but she's also pregnant and she wants to save all her FMLA leave for when she has the baby, it is not her choice. If, if her employer finds out that she has a, uh, an FMLA-qualifying um, injury uh, in a serious health condition and that she's an eligible employee, they can send her that designation letter within five business days of learning that, and then her, it will count towards her 12-week entitlement. Okay. Let's assume that the employer does, never sends out or does not send out that designation letter. Does that either prevent the clock start from starting to tick on the 12 weeks of unpaid leave, or will that, could that conceivably extend the 12 weeks beyond 12 weeks because the employer uh, never notified the employee that it was designating the leave as FMLA? What's the practical effect for an employee when the employer fails to send out that letter? So the answer is that the employer, if they fail to get that notice out within five business days, they cannot count that leave towards the 12-week entitlement. They can't whittle away at the 12 weeks that that employee is entitled to. However, good news for the employee is that they will continue to be protected. There was a case once where an employee had depression and they were actually in a mental hospital. Their wife called the employer and said, uh, he's out, he's in a mental hospital, he has depression. They stayed out for two months, and then the employer said, return to work or we're going to terminate you. They failed to return to work, and the employer terminated them, sued for FMLA, and the court held that it was protected leave. Therefore, they could have stayed out for 12 weeks, and when they were terminated after only eight weeks, even though nobody discussed FMLA, even though the employer never gave FMLA papers, the employee never requested FMLA. So it, it, it goes from the time that the clock starts ticking from the time that the employer becomes aware. But even if they don't get that letter out, the employer still has to understand that that will be protected leave. They cannot protected leave means that the employer cannot discipline or discharge an employee who is out on FMLA leave. So it's an important protection that employees have. And if they are out for a work-related injury and they are an eligible employee, it can help protect them from uh, any termination for being out for that work-related injury. But vis-a-vis the FMLA, obviously not the workers' comp law. Well, let's take that example that you just gave. Uh, and uh, instead of the employee being terminated eight weeks into his absence, he was terminated 12 weeks into, or 14 or 18 weeks into the absence. But the employer still had not sent out that designation letter. If the termination were after the 12 weeks of protected unpaid leave or even after that, by virtue of not having sent out the letter, would they have been precluded from legally terminating the injured worker? No, because the leave, as to the extent that they had the information that this leave was protected, the employee would be allowed to stay out for 12 weeks of leave. Now, the, what happens after those 12 weeks of leave is if, under the FMLA, the employee is 
not able to perform the essential functions of their job, then there is no obligation to reinstate them at the end of those 12 weeks of leave. But at that point, (laughs) uh, what HR needs to do is they need to take off their FMLA hat, which happens all the time, is that you have to look at each law independently. So they take off their FMLA hat, they put on their ADA hat, and then when the employee needs to stay out or the wife says, oh, he needs three more weeks in the, in the mental hospital, he's not able to return to work, at that point, that could be a request for a reasonable accommodation under the ADA that an employer would probably have to grant even after 12 weeks of FMLA leave. It's very interesting and informative. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll come back with Melissa Fleischer to discuss some other areas of employment law that are impacted by a work-related injury. We'll be right back. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back. This is Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. I'm speaking with Melissa Fleischer, an employment law attorney who focuses on the human resource aspect of employment law and what employers and human resources professionals can learn and can do to effectively manage uh, the workplace in for a variety of reasons, among which are work-related injuries. Melissa, we were talking uh, about FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, and a little bit about Americans with Disability Act. Let's Before we get into COBRA, which I want to get into, let's talk a little more about the ADA. The Americans with Disability Act uh, has been around for a number of years. Uh, tell us essentially what that provides and how that is impacted by a work-related injury or disability. Absolutely. So the Americans with Disabilities Act protects not everyone, but only those individuals that meet the definition of being a qualified individual with a disability. Now, there are three different ways that an employee can show that they, are, that they meet that definition of disability. The first is that they have a, um, a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits them in a major life activity. Alternatively, they can also show that they, are, that they have a record of an impairment, like perhaps a um, substance abuse uh, release record that their employer is aware of, or um, thirdly, that they are, they are actually not impaired, they don't have a disability, but their employer regards them as having a disability. But in addition, so a work-related injury can often constitute a disability within the meaning of the ADA, but again, remember that they have to be able to show that they are a quote-unquote qualified individual with a disability, and who is a qualified individual? It is a person who, with or without accommodation, can perform the essential functions of the job. Now, how do we know what the essential functions of their position are? The answer is those essential functions should be listed on the employee's 
job description. So let's say we have an individual, let's say Bob. He has a work-related injury, and now he cannot lift more than 10 pounds. His job description requires, as one of the essential functions, the ability to be able to lift up to 50 uh, 50 pounds. So now he can no longer perform this essential function because his doctor has said he cannot lift uh, more than 10 pounds, so clearly can't lift 50 pounds. He now is not considered to be a qualified individual with a disability. Therefore, he is not protected by the ADA. And it's very interesting how this can play out in the workplace. There was once a case, this was the case of Donor versus City of Rockford. In this case, we had a police officer who his title, his job title was an investigator. And one of the essential functions of his job that was listed on the job description was to identify and apprehend criminals. Now, he had multiple sclerosis, and he was fine for a while, but then he became confined to a wheelchair, and the police department terminated him, which sounds pretty bad. It sounds like disability discrimination, but what happened is he sued under the ADA, and he lost because he was no longer a qualified individual with a disability because he could no longer apprehend uh, criminals, so he couldn't perform one of the essential functions of the job. So the ADA is very legalistic and based on a lot of definitions, but if someone does meet those definitions, then an employer is, number one, prohibited from discriminating against that individual, and number two, and this is where the work-related injury comes in, they are required to provide a reasonable accommodation to someone, for instance, an ergonomic chair or an additional leave of absence, even after FMLA, uh, unless to do so would be an undue burden. Now, you had mentioned in in the qualifying uh, requirements for FMLA, the employer had to be large enough to have at least 50 employees within a 75-mile 70 mile radius, which would exempt a lot of employers, small employers, from the requirements of complying with the Family Medical Leave Act. How about with the ADA? Are all employers subject to ADA, or is there a threshold of size or other criteria that would uh, trigger the obligations under the ADA? Good question. So... Uh, under the ADA, the employer would have to have 15 or more employees to be uh, covered by the ADA. So, uh, obviously, now the other thing that you need to know about this is that, um, and this is true for FMLA as well, most states have their own fair employment laws that apply to even smaller employers. So you can have one, two, three, depending on which state you're located in, employees, and under your state's fair employment laws, you would be a covered employer. And of course, the same thing as the ADA, you would be prohibited from discriminating against a qualified individual with a disability, and you would have to provide them with a reasonable accommodation. Some states, not all, have uh, their own state FMLA laws, which can also provide greater protection than does the federal FMLA, and there's differences with regard to the eligibility requirements, or sometimes you can only take FMLA leave to care for, as I said before, a parent, child, or spouse, 
but there are different definitions of who you can take leave for and who constitutes, uh, you know, a spouse or a child. Or some t- under some state laws, it's a parent in law, whereas under federal law, it's only a parent. You don't have you, you can't take leave to care for your mother in law. <laughs> some employees are, are thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, and actually, you bring up a good point. Uh, you know, we all know workers' comp uh, statutes vary from state to state, so that uh, while there are general principles in play. Uh, how each state treats any particular factual or legal situation could differ, and that's why it's important, obviously, to consult with a professional, whether it's an HR professional or an attorney or an employment or workers' comp attorney in your particular state, because in addition to the federal statutes, you're quite right, states have uh, different requirements for uh, discrimination and family medical leave, for that matter, which gets me to health insurance. If uh, Aside from the question that I frequently get, can I be terminated if I'm out on comp, the next most frequent and perhaps even maybe running neck and neck is the question about health insurance that has become such a big topic uh, in the last 10 or 15 years and such a large item on the balance sheet of an employer that that benefit uh, that comes with the employment and which has triggered uh, in Massachusetts Romney Care or universal health coverage and now known as the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, we have the situation where an injured worker has the expectation that so long as they're out on workers' comp, everything else will remain in place, including the employer-subsidized or um, uh, paid-for health insurance. Tell us about how that works and, and what COBRA means to an injured worker or to an employer, for that matter. Well, under, for instance, we've been talking about the FMLA. Under the FMLA, an employee who is out uh, with a serious health condition for uh, FMLA leave, the employer would be required to uh, maintain their health coverage benefits while they're out on leave. And um, But to the extent that an employee, that a qualifying event occurs, and these types of qualifying events would be the voluntary or involuntary termination of employment for any reason other than uh, gross misconduct, then an employee obviously would be entitled to their COBRA benefits, which means that the uh, employer would offer them to be able to uh, continuation of their health insurance coverage on an individual uh, basis. So, that comes into play as well, but only if a qualifying event occurs. That sounds good, but in, in actuality, let's assume uh, the employee has his or her health insurance through the employer. It's a family plan. Uh, the employer pays 70%, and the employee, through payroll deductions, pays 30%. And all of a sudden, that injured worker is out on workers' comp and receives a what I would call what's called the COBRA letter, advising them that they can now extend the coverage for 18 months, but at what cost? What is the cost? Well, usually, usually it's obviously much higher than uh, what they've been paying for their percentage of benefits that they have to pay. I mean, I frequently see that they have to pay 100% of the cost plus sometimes 10% above that for some type of of, of additional fee, which makes it, for the most part, cost prohibitive. Absolutely. That's why this has been such a huge issue. Now, under, and again, I don't mean to get into a discussion, but under the Affordable Care Act, there is 
some remedy there for the employee who can't afford to exercise his COBRA rights to take over the the underwriting of the 100 or 110 percent of the the premium for a whether it's an individual policy or a family policy. So uh, that's a that's a subject for another show and a subject for for another uh, you know probably more than a half hour discussion. But I think you know the point I want to make here is that one of them aside from the loss of wages aside from the loss of an ability to work and be have a disability losing contributions to a 401k or a pension plan and losing the employer end of of health insurance is a major major blow that if you go outside of the FMLA period of disability or the ADA period it it is a a burden of an injured worker uh, that is going to suffer that loss of, of, of health insurance or disability insurance or life insurance, et cetera. So from a, a, a human resource perspective, do you find that employers need to be aware of how, you know, you know, there's 50 ways to leave your lever, according to Simon and Garfunkel, but there are uh, one or two effective ways to terminate somebody's employment or health insurance. And, and I guess the takeaway I want uh, you to leave us is what does the employer need to know in order to do this effectively, legally, and fairly? Well, that's an excellent question. Sometimes the two don't uh, mesh together. So, um, and, you know, employers need to not only understand what the legal requirements under each of these laws are, the FMLA, the ADA, and workers' comp, but also understand from a, a benefit that their employee provides to the workplace, understanding how to be more uh, compassionate and, and understand what the effect of all of this can be on an injured worker. And usually, you know, nine times out of ten, really, if an employer can be more understanding, then they can try to get that employee back to work as soon as possible, which usually tends to be a win-win situation for everybody. Let me leave you with this one last question. And um, Let's say two employees are injured at the same time, maybe even doing the same task. One is an employee that the employer loves. He that employee, she is the best employee that they've had. They can't wait for this person to get back to work. And the other is, at best, a marginal employee who is probably on thin ice anyway. Uh, they're both out, um, and they're both out more than 12 weeks, and they both exhaust FMLA and exhaust other types of remedies. Can that employer treat the good employee differently than the marginal employee? Can that employer continue the health insurance, can uh, make that job available and terminate one but not terminate the other. Are there uh, there disparate ways that that worker can be treated based upon what I described as their uh, performance before the injury? Well, Alan, you have definitely, you know, hit the nail on the head with that question because that is the key for employers to understand how to best avoid discrimination lawsuits. What an employer can never or should never do is to treat employees differently, even if the reason that they're treating them differently is because one is just this amazing employee with a great attitude, always does overtime for you, will help with anything, and the other one is surly and unhappy and always causing problems and punches out every night at 4.59. It does not matter. Employers are really required to apply their policies consistently across 
the board. And those policies can include their past precedent with regard to when they have, how long they've allowed an individual employee to stay out, even past FMLA, and they should always act equally across the board, even if someone's a good employee versus not so great an employee, because otherwise it can lead to discrimination lawsuits because, let's face it, everyone's in a protected class these days, and uh, the employee who is treated worse will allege that, in fact, the real reason that they were treated uh, worse is because of the fact that they are in a protected class, whatever that protected class may be. So employers need to always apply their policies consistently across the board to each of their employees. Well, I want to thank you very much. You have been an extraordinarily informative guest. The 30 minutes or so have flown by. If you (laughs) want to learn more or contact you, give us uh, your contact information if if you don't mind. Great. Thank you so much. Well, uh, people can reach me at info at hrlearningcenter.com, or they can give us a call at 914-417-1715. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been a pleasure, Alan. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you. And those of you listening, I want to thank you for listening to Workers' Comp Matters. And we hope that you'll tune in again for our other shows. And I would take this point. Thank you for listening. And go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Cop Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.